Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This year, we'll discuss the agenda for the new Congress with Rohit Kumar, co-leader of Washington National Tax Services at PricewaterhouseCoopers and a former senior advisor to Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. Joining the conversation are Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. Well, uh, last week, after 15 ballots, Kevin McCarthy won his quest to become Speaker of the House. And with that, the new 118th Congress is set to begin work uh, with the House in control of the uh, Republicans and the Senate in control of the Democrats. That should all make for some interesting dynamics in the coming months. Uh, is they, even as they try to accomplish some basic tasks like passing appropriations bills and raising the debt limit, uh, let alone try to tackle some of the more uh, bigger policy issues like immigration, health care and tax policy. So our guest, uh, Rohit Kumar, has been in the room, so to speak, for these kind of negotiations in the past. He served as deputy chief of staff to Mitch McConnell. And he was also senior policy advisor and counsel to Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist. So we'll get uh, his take on the congressional agenda and maybe some ideas for some solutions. Rohit, Tory, and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. We have a new Congress starting. They've elected a new speaker and uh, Lots on the on the plate, Tori. I thought I'd pass to you here first. Rohit and I have known each other for a number of years. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring him on here is, is that he's been in uh, the majority leader's office in the Senate for a number of years, for a number of majority leaders. And he knows he knows how decisions are made and how leaders think and how leaders lead their caucus. And so my first question to you, Rohit, uh, with the House and a new speaker with a very, very narrow majority, four votes, I mean, even smaller majority than, than Speaker Pelosi had, uh, how is our new speaker going to govern when he has only four votes to lose? Is he going to try and move right? Is he going to move left? Is it going to be a dance both directions? How do you see this new speakership playing out with such a narrow Republican majority in the House? Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. It really depends on it doesn't so much depend on Speaker McCarthy. It actually depends on his caucus, mm-hmm. right? So his, I think his preference, like all speakers, his preference would be able to unite the caucus, lose no more than four, right? As indicated, based on the size of the majority, um, to be able to pass legislation, even if that legislation ultimately isn't going to be passed by the Senate in the form that it's sent by the House, because you have a Republican House, you've got a Democratic Senate, you've got a Democrat in the White House. So obviously anything that passes the House with just 218 Republican votes is not going to become law as written, right? That, that is sort of axiomatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does open up the negotiation, right? And so to the extent that he is capable of uniting 218 of his 222 members behind a particular policy proposal, I think that would always be the speaker's uh, preferred choice. As we have seen over the course of the last week or so, uniting 
um, 218 of 222 can be a challenge mm-hmm. on um, uh, and a rather significant one at that. Now, on the question of electing a speaker, there was no possibility of getting democratic cooperation, right. you know, for electing Kevin McCarthy as speaker. Um, but that's sort of a unique vote, right? On everything else, it would remain a distinct possibility that you could uh, get some House Democrats, some maybe problem solver Democrats, moderate Democrats uh, to vote for legislation that, you know, so it passes with 180 Republican votes and, you know, call it 40 Democratic votes or, you know, whatever combination of R and D, but maybe more tilted toward R than D, given that it's a Republican House. But that would not be your first choice as Speaker. That would be, you know, uh, your second choice or your last choice. So I think that it really kind of depends. And actually, one interesting thing um, although we haven't yet seen all of the details of the rules package that was negotiated between uh, now Speaker McCarthy and his caucus, it has been widely reported that one of the things that some of the Freedom Caucus Republicans wanted was a more open amendment process, greater mm-hmm. ability of rank and file members to have input into what the final legislation looks like, which to me was a curious thing I think it is good for democracy and it is good for the body politic for more members to have input rather than everything can be decided by the leaders in the leader's office. And I say that despite having been someone who worked in the leader's office for 11 years. Uh, But it's interesting because I think what that is more likely to yield is a policy result that is more moderate in its orientation, right? It is um, to the 20 or so holdouts, at least I I consider the 20 because they were 20 that voted no against Kevin McCarthy, at least initially. Um, that is more likely to be unpalatable to that cohort of actors um, than if it were a sort of leadership-driven, more closed, structured, um, you know, uh, sort of consideration process um, on the House floor. So we'll see, you know, how this plays out. If if the rules are more opened up, as has been suggested, um, does that facilitate outcomes that the sort of the twenty holdouts want? Or do they end up just voting against everything mm-hmm. at the end of the day because it's more moderate proposals that are prevailing with 218 votes that are a mix of Republicans and Democrats? Okay, so that brings the second question. If we've got more moderate, let's take this theory and, and explore it a little bit. If you've got more moderate proposals coming out of the House, you've got a Senate that's Democrat majority. How are they going to be? Are they going to be working out their differences in a traditional way via via conference committee? Are we going to be ping 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 ponging, or are we going to be unable to reach you know agreement on anything except for like the most absolute must pass legislation? Well, look, as a default matter, you have to assume that the most that Congress is going to do is only that which it has to do, right? right? So something government funding, maybe something debt limit. We can talk about uh, those issues that. But on big, big stuff, and this is just true generically, on big, big issues, the parties just don't have a lot of agreement between them, right? There are limited areas where they agree, but on the big kind of trajectory altering kind of legislative proposals, there's just not a lot of agreement between Republicans and Democrats. And so you don't expect, you know, trajectory altering, you know, Affordable Care Act, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, you know, that kind of level of Dodd-Frank, like that kind of Mm -hmm. significant legislation to happen with substantially uh, divided government. Uh, And so, you know, there may be some limited areas for cooperation and where they find those limited areas for cooperation. My default is they don't do a formal conference committee. Those are pretty rare. We had one that was appointed in the last Congress, but it never reached a successful outcome. This was on the CHIPS Act, the semiconductor 
legislation, they ended up processing that bill through a different mechanism. That conference remained open and then died at the end of the Congress, right. um, as does all legislation that, that hasn't become law dies at the end of a Congress. Uh, more likely, you'll see some sort of ping pong with a what would sort of think of as a shadow conference, like a, right. a delegation of House members, delegation of senators uh, meeting somewhere behind closed doors, smoke-filled room, whatever your analogy of choice is. Hideaways. <laughs> forging hideaways, yes, more likely hideaways, forging an agreement. And then that materializes on the House or Senate floor, depending on where the legislation is, as the final conference agreement, even though it's not technically a conference agreement, and in theory could be further amended. But leaders of both parties, leaders in both chambers, will always have the ability to block out amendments um, if, they so, uh, if they see fit to do so. And even if they allow amendments, everyone understands this is an agreement. And if you start amending it, the whole thing falls apart. Right. So let's talk about some specific legislation. Um, one of the things that the Concord Coalition has been beating the, the, the drum about, along with other good government groups, is, is a failure to abide by the, the general budget process, the regular budget process, where you know, the, the president submits a budget, the House and the Senate agree on a budget resolution, then we have off to the races on generating appropriations bills, which come to the floor one by one. So one of the first steps in that process is a budget resolution. Now, I know one of the agreements that Speaker McCarthy agreed to uh, was was to put, put to put on the floor a budget resolution that I guess conservatives wanted to, to balance in the 10th year. Um, but do you see first of all, do you see a budget resolution coming to the floor? Do you think that budget resolution is going to be realistic in any sense in terms of balancing in that 10th year? And do you think it's going to pass out of the House? So. I do think a budget resolution ultimately gets to the House floor. I think Speaker McCarthy made that commitment, and I think I have no reason to think that he doesn't plan on keeping that commitment. But as, as I understand it, his commitment is to bring that to the floor. Right. right. He can't promise that it will pass. Right. And he can't promise that it will be. I mean, realism is sort of in the eye of the beholder. Right? I'm sure they will say it is realistic. Uh, but the, the litmus test of realism, to some degree, will be can you muster 218 votes to pass such a thing? on the House floor. And I think that is going to be quite difficult. Um, you wouldn't imagine that a Republican House, certainly not this Republican House, is going to propose to balance the budget with substantial revenue increases. That right. seems sort of not likely. Um, and actually, to the contrary, uh, House Republicans have already signaled their intent to try to make uh, all, all or most, if not all, of the expiring Tax Cuts and Jobs Act provisions permanent, right? The All the individual and passive provisions that expire at the end of 2025, which if you extended everything, every expiring provision from the TCJA, I think that's about another $4 trillion of revenue foregone over the ensuing decade, right? And so whatever the baseline sort of official numbers will tell you, if you make all the TCJA provisions permanent, it's $4 trillion worse, harder to reach balance than it would be in the absence of extending that um, tax relief. And so this is going to have to come in all political reality. It's going to come, at least in the House Republican budget, on the back of some, of some significant um, spending reductions with entitlements, discretionary spending, and the like. And I suspect that is going to be challenging to produce 218 votes for, because that is the sort of stuff that moderate Republicans, I think, are going to have real political heartache over and are going to worry, um, perhaps justifiably worry, uh, that this is a proposal that is not going to become law. It's a budget resolution, so it doesn't become law anyway. Right. But even if you know you had a Republican Senate, maybe you thought, okay, we're actually going to pass this thing. It's going to create a governing framework for the ensuing two years. Okay, 
there's some policy here that I don't love, but we're getting an outcome and I can defend the outcome against the political attacks of the policy choices that I might not prefer. But here we're not talking about making law or making a framework. We're just talking about making a point, right? That, you know, this is not a real thing that Senate Democrats are never going to take up a House passed Republican budget resolution and agreed all the spending cuts that they would have to build in to reach balance by the 10th year of the budget window. And so this becomes a really, um, I think, interesting vote for moderate House Republicans. And it's entirely possible that this thing fails on the House floor because moderate Republicans look at it and say, yeah, I don't actually support these policies. And I think this is politically unwise for me to support. You know, it'd be inconsistent with my desire to get reelected um, you know, <laughs> in 2024, in a presidential year, where if I'm in a moderate district, right, um, if I'm in a Biden district, for example, just to President Biden cared in 2020, this is like, you know, this may not be a as favorable a political environment as was 2022. And, you know, I, I might feel I, I might have some real angst about this. It actually is a, um, a, a the lesson I'm taking here is reminiscent of a conversation we had when I was working in the leader's office with a Republican senator. This is back when President Bush had proposed Social Security reform, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, rather famously went nowhere. Uh, mm -hmm. But at the time, we had a Republican senator who was uh, up for re-election, who came into the office and said, look, I will take every tough vote on Social Security that you need me to take if we are making law. But I am not going to take even one bad vote if we're just making a point, Great. right? And so you need to give me a path to bill enactment, not just reporting a bill out of the Finance Committee or sending it off the Senate floor to only have it go die um, in the House of Representatives. I think it was, and it was a fairly con conservative and generally pretty courageous member who was willing to take a bunch of tough votes for things that they believed in. Um, but it was a very sort of, it really kind of, you know, crystallized a, a worldview amongst members, which is, I will do a lot of difficult things if I think I'm changing the world for the better. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to do a bunch of difficult things only to say I did a bunch of difficult things and to get no result out of it. And I think a, a budget resolution that's passing with 218 Republican votes, which is the only kind of budget resolution I can plausibly imagine passing in the upcoming Congress, is very much in that category of making a point, not making a law. Although, again, a law is a misnomer in the context of a budget resolution. And I think it actually might be a useful, um, I hate to use this phrase, but I will, teaching moment. Um, for the broader caucus that, um, look, you can, you can write a really conservative policy that caters to a district that is, you know, in, in, in sort of election parlance, a Trump plus 10 or Trump plus 20 or R plus 10, R plus 20 district, but getting 218 votes for that thing is going to be a real challenge. A United House Republican caucus really strengthens the negotiating position of Republicans generally across the board. One thing that's gotten an awful lot of attention recently is the possibility of the debt limit. People looking ahead and saying, you know, my goodness, how are they ever going to get a, uh, an increase in the debt limit enacted? Mm -hmm. It's always difficult. It seems to be even more so now. And uh, the Republican majority in the House has made this, you know, one of their causes to get spending cuts in, in uh, return for a increase in the debt limit. And some people don't want to increase the debt limit under any circumstances. So it's going to be tough. Um, you managed to do it in 2011 and 2013. So I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. And, and just as a warning, we'll probably have to go into the next segment on this. So I may have to interrupt at some point. Okay. But um, uh, really, two questions is that, you know, how might they get this accomplished? And uh, and what happens if they don't? 
Let's let's start with the mechanics, though, of and the politics of, of how they might accomplish a debt limit increase. Yeah. So there are sort of three ways, at least Congress, if we set aside like extraordinary executive action, like all these sort of wild hypotheticals, what I think are wild hypotheticals. No, like no trillion dollar coin. To <laughs> coin or declare the debt limit unconstitutional or, you know, all those other kind of non-congressional off ramps that I think are largely mythical. Um, and I think they're largely mythical because if they existed, I think we would have found them in 2011. Like I don't said, think I don't think Yellen would go for the trillion dollar coin. Anyway. No, I don't think so. And, and you said we got it done in 2011. But what you failed to, to know is we got it done by the hair of our chinny chin chin. We came within days of defaulting on our debt, like, you know, within like hours of not being able to do this before the X date um, landed. So if there had been an off ramp, I, I promise you, we were well motivated to find it. There just wasn't <laughs> one um, available. Uh, so, so that leaves sort of three kind of congressionally driven processes in my mind. Um, one is we just put a clean debt limit on the floor, right? A clean debt limit gets put on the floor because there's no other way. Senate Democrats make it clear. They're not willing to have a conversation. The administration makes it clear. We expect you to send us a bill and we will sign it, but it's got to get to us and it's not going to get through a democratic Senate with all sorts of extraordinary spending cuts attached to it. So put a clean debt limit on the floor. Um, and that's sort of you initiate with clean. I don't think that's the most likely result, at least not initially, but it certainly you know, remains as a legislative option. And that's probably what House and Senate Democrats and the administration are going to be saying should be the, the preferred policy route. Um, option two is a version of that, but with a little bit of a wrinkle to it, which is that it's not something that the speaker sort of initiates on his own as a legislative matter, but rather 218 House members probably overwhelmingly Democrats, but it would require at least a handful of Republicans, uh, pursue a discharge petition, right? Which is the ability of a majority of the House, 218 in this case, to be able to rise up and say, we want this bill on the floor. And we've all signed this piece of paper that says you got to put it on the floor, right? That would sort of notionally force the hand of the Speaker to put something on the floor that he might not support, might not want to, but there is a mechanism in the House rules that would facilitate um, that process. And then presuming that there were 218 or more for the discharge position, then there are 218 votes to pass it you know, out of the House and send it um, to the Senate. Now, all of this is just getting it out of the House. You would still have to produce, uh, at least assuming unified Senate Democratic support, you'd have to produce at least nine Republicans um, on the Senate floor for such a thing, which is not automatic, but at the margins a little bit easier than maybe getting it, um, getting 218 votes in, in the House. Uh, and then the third option, which is, I think, what Republicans in the House will open with, is let's have a negotiation about some mix of, well, they will probably say, let's, let's have a negotiation about some spending reductions, entitlement reforms primarily, um, in conjunction with agreeing to raise the debt limit, right? And I think that's something that House and Senate Democrats are going to be uh, very resistant to. And I think the administration is going to be wholly uninterested um, in that exercise. And I say that in large part because although there was a negotiation in 2011, between the administration and House and Senate Republicans. Um, after that experience, I think the lesson that the, admitted, the Obama administration, of which Biden participated as vice president, the lesson they took away from 2011 was negotiating is a fool's errand and we won't do it again. And that was the approach they took in 2013, which is, yeah, we're done. We're not having this conversation again. We, we are not going to open ourselves up uh, to be ransomed for something that we think you should just do. And we have typically done with limited fanfare. Um, 
the limited fanfare is the was the Obama administration's view. That's not actually historically entirely accurate. The debt limit has actually been used quite regularly to pursue all sorts of policy goals, uh, policy goals that today we would think would be totally out of bounds. Like in the 80s, I think it was Senator Helms who was like, I would like to, you know, end school busing as a, as a collateral matter associated with the debt limit, which if someone showed up today on the House or Senate floor and said that people would lose their minds. Um, so, you know, at least now the conversation is kind of focused on fiscal policy. Back in the day, it was like all sorts of, you know, unrelated uh, matters. So there is some history here, but we have, you know, there was always a sense in the olden days, like, yeah, we know we're going to get there. Whereas now it feels a little bit more like, no, I think they might actually sacrifice the hostage. And that makes me very nervous. I mean, it makes me. It it makes. Yeah. And I do think that that's the, I was going to ask you about that because yeah, in the old days, we thought, yeah, yeah, it's a negotiating tactic and whatever, and everybody was playing the game. And now it's like, oh, wait a minute, there's, there's yeah, real bullets on the gun. They're, they're not, they're we got to take a break. We yeah. got to take okay. a break. Uh, and uh, But we'll, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are talking with Rohit Kumar of the uh, of PwC, National Tax uh, Services. And we're talking about uh, the congressional agenda. And uh, when we uh, went away for the break, we were talking specifically about the debt limit and uh the need to raise it later in the year and how that might happen. Uh, Rohat was going through three general approaches to it. Um, when uh, when you were working for Senator Mitch McConnell back in the 2011-2013 uh, debt limit crises, uh, one of the things that uh, you came up with, I don't know whether it was you personally, but one of the things that Mitch McConnell was credited with was something called the McConnell Rule, which I thought was very clever, which uh, which said basically that the president could raise the debt ceiling or could recommend a, a raising the debt ceiling subject to a resolution of disapproval by the Congress. So Congress could so President Obama at that time uh, wanted to raise the debt ceiling. He would send that request to Congress. Congress could say no. Uh, so Republicans who were against a debt limit uh, increase could vote that way. It was subject to a veto then, so oh, President Obama could veto it. So it was, I thought, a a very elegant way of uh, getting to a debt ceiling increase with people being able to register their disapproval. Do you think something like that could work in this environment? You know, it, I think it remains to be seen. That that was a um, a proposal that was born of the crisis as we were barreling towards default. Um, and we started to get a little bit more creative in our thinking about how we might get out of this. It was actually, to be honest, it was inspired at the time by a comment that President Obama made you know, publicly um, about essentially saying, look, if you want me to wear the jacket on this or wear the coat on this with some version of clothing, um, if you want me to like own this, I'm happy to own it. Right. That was sort of his you know, public comment. And it was actually it was interesting because uh, people may not recall, but when President Obama was Senator Obama, he voted against a debt limit increase and said it was sort of the height of irresponsibility that we had to do this thing. And then, of course, and guess who tweeted that out? Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, of course, you think differently about these problems when you're a senator versus when you are president of the United States, because um, if you default on the debt as president, people hold you responsible. If you default on the debt and you're just a rank and file senator, probably nobody knows what role you played um, in the exercise. 
And so it actually got us thinking, uh, okay, well, he's offered to own this. How do we have the president own it? Well, we you know, take a page out of an old playbook, resolutions of disapproval, and we say to the president, fine, you want to raise the debt limit? You raise the debt limit. And we get to tell you no. Right? Congress gets to say no. Now, because of Supreme Court precedents, uh, resolutions of disapproval cannot just be effective by passage in both chambers. They have to be signed into law by the president. He would, of course, veto a disapproval of his own debt limit increase. And then essentially, as long as the president or the president's party could hold one third of one chamber, thus preventing an override in both chambers, the debt limit increase would you know, carry uh, the day. Uh, so it was sort of a, a, you know, a proposal born of a crisis. If we get as close to the debt limit default date as we did in 2011, I suppose anything is possible. Um, but I think there, it, it, you know, in the period of time since then, some other proposals that I think are actually a bit more thoughtful, despite my own involvement in the original McConnell rule, um, have come to the fore that I think actually might provide a, a more durable kind of way out of this. If we're not going to abolish the debt limit entirely, which you know I am publicly in favor of, I co-authored an op-ed with Jason Furman, who was the head of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama and was involved in many of these debt limit negotiations that I was a part of. Um, if we're not going to do that, um, then there is legislation by Congressman Peters and Congressman Arrington, Republican and Democrat, or Democrat and Republican respectively, um, in the House, pretty ideologically diverse group of actors. Um, that basically, without getting into the nitty gritty details, which would take us uh, an hour in and of itself, but essentially it does what I think is the most you can hope for out of a debt limit increase, which is this legislation would simply, in conjunction with the need to erase the debt limit, would force to the top of Congress's to-do list an examination of our current state of fiscal affairs, right? It would force Congress to seriously entertain proposals to reduce our, our debt to GDP Ratios. It didn't, wouldn't have to pass them. You wouldn't have to pass them in order to get a debt limit increase. You would simply have to give them due consideration. And if Congress says, yeah, we're not interested in these things, we don't think it's a problem, we don't want to do it, that's fine. Right? You still get the debt limit increase. You don't default on your debt. You've just forced Congress, amongst a million of other things they could be paying attention to, to spend a little bit of time focused on the state of fiscal affair. Uh, and the reason I say that, that is the most you can get out of a debt limit increase is because having been party to transactions where we tried to bind a future Congress with spending reductions, um, you know, because as, as a part of a debt limit increase uh, exercise, what we found, and, and perhaps this should not have been a surprise, is it's really high, hard to make a future Congress agree to policies that it didn't come up with and doesn't support. Mm -hmm. And indeed, they don't. Anything you can do by law, you can undo by law. Mm -hmm. And so what we saw in the wake of 2011 with the failure of the Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction, the so-called Super Committee, right? There were these automatic spending cuts and future Congresses were not interested in maintaining those spending cuts. So they kind of delayed them, delayed them. And ultimately, we're just like, you know what the heck with it? We're going to repeal this thing, right? And so binding a future Congress to a set of fiscal policies that that Congress doesn't actually agree with is literally impossible, right? They will always find a way to undo them. So all you can really get out of this exercise is let's just examine the state of fiscal affairs. And if we decide it's a problem, we have a moment to do something about it. And if a future Congress says, eh, I think we're good, then, you know, carry on. There's one uh, before we leave the debt limit, Bert, um, I, I, there is the question that I want to get into of what happens if they don't raise the debt? I mean, we always say they have to raise the debt limit. Surely they have to raise the debt limit. 
And so uh, why is it that, that markets get so freaked out about what happens if Congress doesn't raise a debt limit? So I think the reason markets get, I think, justifiably freaked out about what happens if Congress fails to raise a debt limit and the U.S. defaults on its debt, which is the, the natural consequence of failing to raise a debt limit, is it undermines kind of one of the bedrock principles of the global financial community, which is the unassailability of treasury bills of the dollar as a safe haven um, investment, right? That the dollar, that the U.S. government will always make good on its debts. Um, this is the one thing you can count on more than anything else in the world, more so than any other asset class, more so than any other currency, whether it's the euro or the sterling pound, or you pick a currency of choice, right? This is the one thing that you can invest in and that you are sure you are going to get your money back. Um, and it undermines that. And so what happens? I mean, we don't actually know what happens, but some people have done simulations about what we think might happen. And they're, of course, all universally bad, right? The, the least bad version of it is, you know, interest rates spike. Um, interest rates on T-bills spike, interest rates on credit card loans, uh, auto loans, mortgages, mortgages, everything goes through the roof. The market takes a huge decline. So anyone that's invested in the market, you get a 401k or an IRA or whatever, you expect balances to decline. Um, a recession follows in the US. It probably triggers a recession um, globally. Whether it's just a recession or a depression, you can debate. Um, I will tell you, uh, Bob, when we were doing this in 2011, and we had people who were like, yeah, what's the big deal? You're like, you know, if we run out of money, uh, we run out of uh, borrowing capacity, we will just pay our bondholders first, right? And then won't pay, we we'll just not make other payments, but we always pay our bondholders first, setting aside that the treasury systems are not geared to make some payments, but not others. I always thought that was a little politically um, maybe interesting is a, a kind word here. You're going to pay our bondholders first, which are a lot of foreign sovereigns, a lot of the sovereign wealth funds, a lot of foreign governments. Uh, yes, let's but, pay China before we pay our social security beneficiaries. But not pay the troops, not pay social security, not pay Medicare, right? All of the things that are politically more popular for the government to spend money on than paying foreign um, bondholders. And in any event, it wouldn't matter because the ratings agencies would treat that as default. Well, that's what I was going to say. That's what always got me about that prioritization bill and stuff like that. It says, what are the markets supposed to not notice that they're right. <laughs> stiffing yeah. other people? Oh, well, I get paid, but they're stiffing all these other. I mean, yeah, yeah. You're, if you're insolvent, you're insolvent. It, yeah. It's not really, it, it doesn't so much matter who you didn't pay. You are insolvent. It's sort of binary. You either are or are not solvent. And the moment you default on your debt, even if it's to a social security recipient or a Medicare recipient or, or a soldier in the field, um, you're insolvent. And so it's, um, you know, the again, the analogy we used uh, at the time, and I promise you, this is actually how we were talking about it on Capitol Hill, was let's play out the hypothetical of what if the US and Russia launched all the nuclear weapons at once, right? The, the minimum scenario is a lot of people perish, right? And the doomsday scenario is everyone perishes because there's nuclear winter and everything on earth dies. But those are your sort of choices, neither of which are good and both of which should be avoided at all costs. And there's no sort of saying, well, but it's only, you know, only a couple billion people perish. So that's okay, as opposed to everyone perishing. I mean, that's how we were thinking about it in 2011. It is why we were coming up with all sorts of, that's, you know, born of the McConnell rule, the platinum coin is forged, the concept of it anyway is forged. And it's moment because the consequence of failure was seen as so high that we had to do everything within our collective abilities to avoid that result. Now, whether we're right about that, uh, I, don't, I don't actually mean to say that defaulting our debt would be the same as 
the US and Russia launching all their nuclear weapons, it clearly would not be at that level of scale. But that's just you know, how we were thinking about the issue at the time. Yeah, I was uh, just thinking, you know, and I always uh, think about this, is that people tend to equate a government shutdown and defaulting on the debt. And the consequences of one are so much bigger than the other. I mean, if we have appropriations bills don't get passed and there's a government shutdown, you can rely on a continuing resolution and eventually things will get, uh, uh, you know, solved. It's dysfunctional, but it's not catastrophic, whereas the debt ceiling is something totally different. There's no... There's no continuing resolution if you uh, start defaulting. Well, uh, it's not the equivalent. We have, um, unfortunately, lots of experience with shutting down the government. I mean, not just like we didn't pass the bills, so we passed a continuing resolution. I mean, actual, really, they're partial government shutdowns because a good deal of the U.S. spending is on, you know, sort of its entitlements. It's on automatic payments. It's really yeah. just the discretionary accounts. We've shut the government down or had a lapse in appropriations, just a technical term, I don't know, probably 20 times in the last 20 or 30 years. Right. And we've survived it. And, you know, other than the momentary disruption, no one really looks back and thinks, oh, do you remember the shutdown of 1994? It lasted two weeks. It was terrible. I thought we were never going to get out of it. No, we always get out of it. We always because we can retroactively go back, reopen the government, pay everyone that didn't get paid. It does create real hardship for those people that are living paycheck to paycheck that miss a paycheck. But it is very survivable. It is more than survival. It's partly the reason we keep doing it. Right. Because it's like, yeah, it's not good, but it's hardly the end of the world. Um, we have not intentionally defaulted on our debt ever, right? Yeah. So, so I mean, it's completely it, it, uncharted territory. This has long-term effects, like affecting the creditworthiness of the United States and the full faith and credit yes. of the United States. We're going to have to take a break at this point. Uh, I'm your host, Bob Bixby. You're listening to Facing the Future. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Rohit uh, Kumar of PwC. And we're talking about the congressional agenda, the debt ceiling. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about tax policy. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby and Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Rohit Kumar of PwC. We're talking about and by, I should mention that he was a top advisor to uh, Mitch McConnell and uh, Majority Leader Bill Frist in the Senate. Uh, and so he has been in the room for heavy duty negotiations on things like tax policy, the debt limit, budget negotiations. And we've talked about some of those things. I want to turn now to, to Steve and perhaps get into some of the uh, tax issues that will be coming up in the new Congress. Yeah. So I, we mentioned earlier the 2017 tax cuts, which of course expire in 2025. So there's no no real sense of urgency there, but uh, as you're well aware, there's a whole laundry list of expiring, what they call expiring tax provisions uh, that normally the Congress addresses at the end of the year, but this time they uh, surprisingly didn't, didn't really do it. There was a couple of, I think, provisions related to retirement accounts, and that was sort of the extent of it. So you know, there's been a lot of discussion in terms of the expiring child credit. There's, of course, some of the, the business provisions uh, from the 2017 tax cut to accelerated depreciation, I think. Some of those things are either expiring or phasing out. I mean, what, what do you think the prospects are that this Congress will be able to address the, uh, the expiring provisions uh, in the next year or so? So if you're talking about the provisions that expired, that have already expired, that Congress failed to address at the end of 2022... Uh, and there are a handful, and probably the one that hits the most number of companies that has sort of the greatest ability to do kind of violence to our economic system 
Um, is the requirement to capitalize and amortize uh, research expense, so-called 174, that's the code section, um, 174 <laughs> expenses. Um, and the reason that that is sort of uh, so challenging is even before this provision took effect, and this provision took effect at the beginning of um, 2021. So it's, um, I'm sorry, at the, end, at the beginning of 2022. So it's been in effect for a, a full year now. Um, you know, almost every company of any size, even small and medium-sized companies do a lot of research and it's traditionally been treated as a normal business expense. You deduct it in the year in which it's incurred. Now, um, if those expenses are incurred domestically, you have to spread that deduction out over five years. Um, and if it's incurred overseas, you have to spread it out um, over 15 years. And so even before this happened, the US ranked like 28th out of 34 countries in terms of the quality of our research incentive. And now we are you know, further down um, the list. And, and these are the sorts of good, high-paying jobs that a knowledge-based economy of the sort that we primarily have ought to want to incent and keep and you know, have more of, not less of. Um, if you look around the world, lots of other countries have much more generous research incentives than what we had even before. So in some countries, you get what's called a super deduction. So if you spend $100, you get to deduct $200. Right. So you get like a super incentive to do R&D. And let's face it, there are a lot of really smart people in lots of other countries. And so you don't have to do this R&D here. You can do it, you know, in, in lots and lots of places. So that that's one that got a lot of attention. Um, it, it didn't get done in large part because at the end of the day, House and Senate Democrats said, well, if we're going to do this thing for large businesses, of course, it's not really for the businesses. It's for the employees who get paid the salary. Um, we've got to do something on the child tax credit. It was a pretty dramatic expansion of the child tax credit in the 2021 COVID relief package. It expired at the end of 2021. Democrats wanted to resurrect it in the reconciliation bill, originally called Build Back Better, ultimately called the Inflation Reduction Act. Senator Joe Manchin um, was not in favor of that policy and so kept it out. And since Democrats needed unanimity amongst Senate Democrats to pass anything, his veto of it was outcome determinative. Um, and at some level, Senate Republicans said, hey, we've got this research thing that is overwhelmingly bipartisan. Um, we don't really think it's sort of politically on, at uh, level to say we need to pay a sort of ransom of this child tax credit provision that even that there's not even 51 votes for in the Senate because Senator Manchin has said he wasn't for this. Now, at the end of the day, I think Democrats would have come to a smaller, more manageable, politically manageable version of the child tax credit, but that kind of came too late in the year for it to get done. So I think there's some prospect that that gets dealt with in calendar year 2023. There are a host of provisions. There's that provision. There's, of course, the child tax credit. There's interest limitation rules that got a little bit tighter at the end, at the beginning of 2022. Um, and then there were some provisions that actually flow from that March 2021 COVID relief package. One of the revenue raisers that helped finance that bill was um, a new reporting requirement that anybody that engages through one of the electronic payment, payment platforms if you got more than $600 um, on a payment platform, you're going to get a 1099, it's now called a 1099K, um, from that platform operator, right? But of course, a lot of people get paid electronically for like paying back for dinner or splitting costs of concert tickets or, you know, whatever it is. It's not income. It's just, I paid for dinner and you're paying me back, right? And so there's a risk that there's going to be a whole lot of confusion in the system that anyone that got more than $600, which could be tens of millions of Americans... Um, is going to get this thing and not know what to do with it, or how are they going to prove that this wasn't income? Then no, 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 I paid for dinner, but did you keep your receipt from February of 2022 that you paid for dinner for six of your friends and five of them paid you back? 
right? You did that repeatedly throughout the year and suddenly you have more than $600 of transactions. And so that was delayed. That requirement was supposed to kick in this year, right? It was applicable for last year and you're supposed to get notices like now. The IRS delayed that by its own sort of administrative authority. Uh, Not clear on what statutory basis they delayed it, but it's a pro-taxpayer move, so probably no one's going to sue them. Um, But they probably need a statutory fix in calendar year 2023 to avoid having to deal with this in the beginning of 2024. So I think that is an engine that a lot of people are eyeing to carry some of these tax provisions that weren't done at the end of 2022 to carry them across the finish line. It has the political virtue, if you will, of having been enacted in a Democrat-only reconciliation bill. So if Republicans want to address some revenue raisers that were in the Republican-only reconciliation bill, the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, there's a certain sort of political symmetry, if you will, uh, between those provisions. So I think that, you know, there's a hodgepodge of things and that, could, that, that sort of 1099 reporting requirement could become kind of the instigator for some sort of tax legislation. But Steve, broadly speaking, I think that might be it. Um, and then what you're going to see, though, and this will be important, um, is you will see a lot of position taking in advance of 2025 when all the individual and past supervisions from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the 2017 Act, expire. And I will tell you, having negotiated um, with Senator McConnell and Vice President Biden and, and, a, and, a, and a staffer from the White House back in 2012, having negotiated the last fiscal cliff, I will tell you, by the time we stepped into the negotiating room, about 80% of the issues had already been resolved through the positions that the parties had taken in the two years prior. Right? So this position taking that will happen over the course of the next two years, while it's not likely to yield lawmaking, um, will set the terms of that terminal negotiation that happens Q3, Q4, 2025. So for people who have equities at stake, uh, which is everybody that gets a, you know, a W-2 wage earner has equities at stake, um, it, it's important to pay attention to what House Republicans say about this, House and Senate Republicans say about this. It's important to pay attention to what the administration says in its budget proposals about this, because that will identify the areas of agreement and the areas where they're likely to be negotiating up until the bitter end. And, and the last thing I'll say is, um, if it is an issue that has not been pre-resolved, mm-hmm. right, because the parties have agreed in their various opening bids, um, you have no idea how it will land in the negotiation at the end of 2025. And I say this because the issues that were unresolved going into the 2012 negotiation, and I was one of the people going into the room, even I had no idea how those issues were going to be resolved. So if even the negotiators don't know which issues are going to be resolved in which way, then nobody that's not in the room can know either. So it's really important to have a sense of what's in agreement, what's in disagreement, because the stuff that's in disagreement could go any one of a number of ways, and it's impossible to predict how it's going to land. Got about two minutes. <laughs> so, All right. You go ahead, Steve. If you, if you... No, that's okay. I just was going to say, you know, there, there's a few things that arguably will have to be done this year but you have all of the position taking on the 2017 issues. I mean, does that, you know, does that gum up the works and prevent them? And as you start a snowball rolling down the hill and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. So, you know, do you, do you prevent doing the little must pass stuff this year because they're too busy looking at everything else? I mean, does that, does that, no, I think it's, it's actually, it's possible to disaggregate the stuff that happens at the end of 2025 from the stuff that's already expired that people want to address near term. And Congress has history of being able to draw those kind of political lines. Like this is a classic where there's a will, there's a way. There's nothing that says if you do a tax bill in 2023, you got to look all the way 
2025. And actually, what I think the most likely outcome, to the extent that there's any outcome in 2023, it is all those provisions that expired back in time just get extended until the end of 2025. You line them up with the expiration of all the individual and passive provisions. And you say, look, we got a $4 trillion fiscal cliff awaiting us at the end of 2025. What's another couple hundred billion dollars between friends? And you know, we're going to figure it out in 2025. We'll have another congressional election. We'll have a presidential election. And we'll let the next team figure it out. How are we going to pay hey, for that extension? <laughs> that's a uh, that that is truly a cliffhanger, and we'll <laughs> we'll have to come back later on and uh, get your take on that. But for now, that's all we have time for this week. And we really thank you for being so generous with your time and being so insightful in your uh, comments to uh, all of our questions. Happy to do it. Uh, this is Bob Bixby. I'm your host. We're, uh, this is I'm with uh, Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson. We've been discussing the upcoming congressional uh, agenda with Rohit Kumar, co-leader of Washington National Tax Services at PricewaterhouseCooper, and a former senior advisor to Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.